Hey, River Valley, we have got something special for you this weekend. Yeah, we had an amazing sisterhood night on Friday night with our special guest, Lisa Turkhurst. We were just blown you away. You stop talking oh, about it. It was an incredible message. And for those of you that want to watch, it's on YouTube. You can watch it there. But we were just so glad to have her. And we're like, hey, could you please stay for the weekend? We'd love for our whole church to hear from yeah, you. Yeah, so this weekend, the whole church gets to hear from Lisa. And so here at all of our campuses, will you welcome Lisa, Lisa Turkhurst. Thank you so much. It's such an honor and joy to be with you. Um, we are going to be in 1 Peter chapter 5. Now, before you start having heart palpitations, because maybe you haven't traveled to 1 Peter um, in the recent days, I'm going to help you find it. So if you just, if you have your Bible and you turn to the last book of the Bible, Revelation, you just need to make a few left-hand turns right here, and you will find Second Peter, and you know you're getting close. So just flip the page, and you'll find First Peter chapter 5. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for giving us an opportunity to get into your word, to see something new and fresh, even though these truths are timeless and secure. Lord, I pray that we would not just take this message in, but that we would make it part of who we are and how we live. We love you. In your holy name we pray. Amen. Okay, so 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 8 is actually where we're going to start. And again, I love to take popular verses that maybe you've heard many times and point out something new. It's not new theology. The, the guy that works for me who is this close to his doctorate in Old and New Testament theology, his name is Joel. Joel always says new theology is usually bad theology. So I'm not giving you new theology, okay? But I do want to show you a new way to look at a very wonderful and timeless set of verses. So 1 Peter chapter 5 verse 8 says this, be alert and of sober mind. Your enemy, the devil, prowls about around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Now, I heard these verses spoken and preached a lot when I was attending a youth camp. Now, I went, I didn't go to church my whole life, but every now and then a friend would invite me to a Christian youth camp, and this was typically one of the verses that they would share to remind me not to get drunk on alcohol, okay? And so most of the time, we think about becoming dysregulated because of a substance like alcohol or drugs, just say no, Right? But there's something else going on here that I think makes these verses applicable even to those of us who do not struggle with addiction. Because I have learned in therapy that what we do not work out, we act out. And often how our emotional unhealth or unhealed places come out sideways is either through addiction or through friction. It's usually either in addiction because we're trying to numb the pain or in friction because we overreact to the offenses at hand because we're not just reacting from the present emotional 
hardship. We are pulling on unhealed places from our past and multiplying them all together. And so what we don't work out, we act out in either addiction or friction. And I'm sure there's a few other action things that could possibly apply here. But for the sake of time, we're going to stick with just those two. And I don't really want to talk about the addiction side as much as I want to talk about the friction side of things. A couple of years ago, I was going through a really, really hard time, and so I decided to stick my toes in the world of going to a Christian counselor. And it it took me a long time as a Christian to say therapy. I don't know why I had such an aversion, but it was like, if you're a Christian, you know, take every thought captive and pray it through, right? And so it was hard for me to say, like, I'm going to therapy. And I mean, it took me years to say, I have a therapist. (laughs) So this was like a hard thing for me to get into. And then once I got into it, I thought, why in the world have I been so resistant to this? I've been tending so well to my spiritual health that I had absolutely neglected my emotional health and it was absolutely taking a toll. So to to jumpstart this therapy, I decided to go to a week-long therapeutic program and, um, and I did request a Christian counselor, so that was good, but I did have people from all walks of life in my group. There were two strippers, a banker, uh, um, let's see, a, 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 like a vice president of this really huge company, um, another therapist who actually needed therapy herself, and uh, a mortgage guy, and me. And so I remember sitting in this therapy group, and I'm thinking, I am with people from all walks of life. And one of the things we had to do was talk about our coping mechanisms. Now, coping mechanisms are not necessarily bad until they are taken to an unhealthy place or to an extreme, right? It's okay to need to cope with something in the short term, but it can be taken to an extreme, and that's often where your addiction processes come in. So I was sitting there, and they were talking about ways that they cope with emotional hardship, And they were going around the circle and like sharing. And I started to sweat because I was like, wow, everybody has something to share and I don't have an addiction. And so I was listening, like this person was addicted to cocaine, this person it was alcohol, this person it was Netflix, um, and, and all kinds of addictions were coming out. And I started to think, this might be my problem. Like my problem might be that I don't have an addiction. Maybe I need to try an addiction. Maybe that would help me. Well, I quickly reined that in because the consequences for for their addictions were severe. So I got to me and I said, you know, I'm not going to make something up. I I thought about I could say like I'm addicted to this, but but when you're an addict, do you know the language? And people would quickly sniff out. I didn't know the language so that I was lying, you know, so I couldn't just make up an addiction that I had. So I really thought, and I I finally just decided to be honest. I said, I think my problem is I, I, I don't have a coping mechanism. And my, my therapist looked at me and she said, well, you actually do. You just don't know what it is. And I was like, What? And she goes, no, Lisa, you, you actually do have a coping mechanism that you are using to override your need to tend to emotional trauma that you faced. And I was like, well, what is it? She said, you hyper-spiritualize everything. And I said, well, I feel like that's a good thing. 
And she said, Lisa, it is a good thing, but even good things taken to an extreme can become unhealthy things. She said, because here's what I think you do. I think you jump over tending to your emotional needs and your emotional health because you're so quick to get to a spiritual perspective and reframe everything with, and God eventually will make it okay. Again, that's not a bad thing. But if we are using it so that we do not have to deal with the pain, then we will never tend to healing the pain. We need both. We need to be able to understand things in the greater context of the goodness of God, 100%. We need spiritual healing and we need to tend to our emotions in a healthy way. So it started to, it started to, kind of become this fascination to me of how do we combine therapy and theology. And at Proverbs 31 Ministries, we actually even started a podcast called Therapy and Theology. And what we do is we, we uncover that even the therapeutic principles that seem so fresh and new are actually drawing upon biblical principles that God already included in the Bible because God cares well for our emotional health and our spiritual health and our physical health and our financial health. We, we, it all comes back to truths that we find in the Bible. Therapy and theology are not worlds apart. It's actually all God's idea. And so as I started to understand that, I, I started to get a little more brave. Like, yeah, I go to therapy and I have a therapist and now I'm going to do a podcast. <laughs> I'm just going to put the world of therapy and theology on display. So I have a really good therapist that's on the podcast with me. He's actually my personal counselor and, and uh, he's amazing. He has a great, he has all kinds of degrees, but he's very trained in emotional trauma and he also has a seminary degree, so it's great. And then I have the theological expert named Joel, who I already mentioned. And so one person is bringing the, the theology expertise, one per person's bringing the therapy expertise, and I bring the issues, and it works so well. <laughs> and so we have just these fascinating conversations. But one of our favorite things to talk about, and the number one most requested topic that we get is on boundaries. Now here's why. Because so many of us Christians feel guilty for tending to our own emotional health. And when you hear boundary, you can instantly start to feel like, oh, a boundary is to shove other people away. And that is unchristian, that is unkind, that is uncaring. And I'm here to say that boundaries are not to shove other people away. They're so that we can hold ourselves together. And it's part of what we're talking about in 1 Peter chapter 5 in verse 8. Be alert and of sober mind. And when I started to dig around and look in the Greek dictionary about what does this sober-minded mean, the word, the original Greek word for that is spelled N-E-P-H-O. And what it really means is to be self-possessed, clear-headed and attentive to what's going on. Self-possessed, clear-headed and attentive to what's going on. 
Further on in the dictionary, it says when you think about this verse, what's really being encouraged here is to curb the controlling influence of inordinate emotions or influences. In other words, there is a sobriety that is necessary and it is necessary both from substances that could make us not sober and emotions that could make us not sober. There is this thing called emotional sobriety. And it, when you study it, it rings very closely to evidence that God's spirit is in you called being self-controlled. I was so amazed by this. And then I started to dig around in in how God wired our brain. Our brain is wired so that there is the logical part of our brain called the prefrontal cortex. And then there is the limbic system, which is also right where the amygdala is. The amygdala in our brain is where emotional trauma is stored. And the limbic part of our brain is that part of our brain that is set to react and protect ourselves when something alarming is happening. You get alarmed and you fight, flight, freeze. I add freak out because that's what I do. And and it, it propels us to do something to get away from the alarm. It served us really well in the days where a saber-toothed tiger was coming. And it's like, oh, saber-toothed tiger. I don't need the logic part of my brain to go, let me analyze the size of his teeth. Let me make a spreadsheet to decide how fast do I need to run to outrun him? No. You need something else to kick in. And so God gave us this ability to have an alarm bell go off and to immediately know we don't have to put thought into it. We get out of that situation. Now, here's the problem. Too many of us Christians are in situations where the alarm bells are going off and we ignore them time and time and time again. So we have all this energy driving us to know we need to do something, but when we do nothing, that's where anxiety comes from. Now, I want to show you something else interesting if we look at the context of this verse. Um, verse 8 says, be alert and of sober mind, but, but what is the context of it? Verse 7 Cast all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. Be alert and of sober mind. And then what's the other part of this? Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. The the name of the enemy actually means one who casts something between two to cause a separation. The enemy has goals and purposes, just like God has purposes for you. The God is, is unity, and the enemy is about disunity. And so when we think about all of us dealing with so much anxiety, I think it's because we are not tending well to our emotional sobriety. And when alarms go off, and we know something needs to change, instead of being passive all in the name of Christianity and all in the name of like, well, I need to lay down my life for this friend. Let me tell you this. Jesus did model laying down his life, his one life, and he laid it down for the highest and most holy calling. We are not to lay down our life 
for things that are not holy. Because if we lay down our life for things that are not holy, that is called enabling. That is not called caring for people well. So what do we do? We're anxious. We're in a relationship. And we say something's got to change. But we don't know how to make changes. Because here's what we usually try to do. Okay, I know I need a boundary. So I'm going to tell them what they need to do. I'm going to say, I'm drawing a boundary and you no longer are allowed to do this, this, and this. And it does not work. It does not work. It only increases the friction of the situation. And then we say, yeah, I mean, I tried those boundaries. I mean, I told him over and over and over, and he just won't listen, right? That's what we have to remember. Boundaries are not tactics of manipulation and control that we place on another person. Boundaries are not supposed to be threats that we make because a threat is something in extreme and we're trying to avoid extremes. Anytime we get into the realm of extremes, that's where we get into the realm of being triggered over and over and over. And we start to feel more and more hopeless about all the people. How many of you during the pandemic, you don't have to raise your hand, but how many of you during the pandemic thought, what? in the world is going on with all these crazy people that I have tried to do life with. And I could, I, I could handle it when they would leave and go bother other people during the day. But then the pandemic hit and I'm quarantined. My counselor said that the pandemic was like draining a lake and it forced us all to see what's really there. We cannot deny it and it's time to work on it. Therefore, we need to understand how to appropriately do boundaries. Boundaries are not control tactics, manipulation tactics, because we're not trying to make the other person do something. What we are establishing with a boundary is what we can and cannot do. What we are willing and no longer willing to tolerate. What we have to give and what we no longer have to give. Now, boundaries are not just a good idea. They're actually a God idea. What? What incarnation is that really true? Okay, well, let's go all the way back to Genesis because when you study theology, there's this thing called the law of first mention. So where is it first mentioned that there's a boundary? In the Garden of Eden. And God establishes very clearly. As a matter of fact, if you go and read the language, I, I, I just encourage everyone to go and read Genesis 1, 2, and 3. Just read it. And it is amazing because so much of what we are dealing with now all goes back to Genesis 1, 2, and 3. And when God establishes the one boundary for people, he establishes it in the context of freedom. He says, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from this one tree in the middle of the garden or else the consequences you will what? Die. Okay, so I want to point out a couple of things. It's set in the context of freedom. It is for the sake of the relationship. It's not to the detriment of that relationship, okay? The second thing I want to point out is that there is a consequence for the boundary violation. Boundaries without a consequence are nothing but bad suggestions, right? 
And the third thing I want to I want to point out to you is is that it was for the sake of health in the dynamic, not for the detriment. God was not trying to be a killjoy. God was not trying to shove those people into a little box and make them be puppets. No, he gave them great freedom. It was actually for protection, not rejection, that the boundary was established. And the same is true for us. Now, here's what's really interesting. Okay, so you're in Genesis, the beginning, and God gave so much freedom, and he gave one boundary. And humans violated the boundary. So God implemented the consequence. He did it with grace and he did it with mercy, but he absolutely implemented the consequence. They were no longer allowed to stay in the garden. By the time we get to Leviticus, there's not just one rule because the people kept violating the boundaries over and over and over. And many scholars say, and there's a little debate on the exact number, but many scholars say by the time you get to Leviticus, there were 613 rules. Because the people were not honoring the access to freedom God had given them. They were not being responsible with their freedom. Therefore, the access had to be reduced. And the same is true in our life. Here are two words. If you don't take notes on anything else, I just want you to write down these two words, access and responsibility. To the level that we give someone access is to the level they must bring the responsibility to handle that kind of access to us. When someone is given level 10 access to us, but they are only willing or capable of level three responsibility, something has to change. Health cannot bond with unhealth. Light cannot bond with darkness. And level 10 access with only a level three responsibility requires boundaries. Now, we can try the tactic of telling that person, you need to lift up your area of responsibility. And maybe if we have healthy conversations, if that person is mature and they're healthy and they are willing to have that conversation, then maybe they have made a mistake. And if their behavior is a mistake and you address it and they lift their responsibility up to the access that you've given them, great. However, if it is not a mistake, their irresponsibility, if it is a pattern that is happening over and over and over, and there's a big difference between a mistake and a pattern, if it is a pattern and they are not willing or not capable of raising up their level of responsibility, then we must reduce the access down to their level of responsibility. This is not unkind. This is not uncaring. And again, it's not just a good idea. It's actually a God idea. When God established the temple, think about how if you read and study the temple, God gave certain people access, but the greater the access that God let them have, 
And the closer they got to the Holy of Holies, which was the greatest access, the more responsibility the people were required to demonstrate. And it was so much so that the high priest who, who were given access to the Holy of Holies once a year, they had to be absolutely pure. They had the highest level of responsibility since they had the highest level of access. And when they would go in after a lot of purification and, you know, just many, many things they had to do to be responsible with that kind of access, they, they would have a rope tied around their ankle and bells in the hem of their garment. So if they did not carry in if they, if they walked in and they did not have the right level of responsibility, if they had violated their responsibility, the consequence was that they would die. And they would, when they would fall over, keel over dead, the bells would ring, and the people on the outside would be like, oh, y'all, bro, good thing we have a rope tied to that fool. And they would pull him out because they did not want to walk into the Holy of Holies because they, wouldn't, they weren't prepared. They, didn't, they weren't required to have that level of responsibility, right? So this isn't just a good idea, it's a God idea. And sometimes I think we get in trouble when we think about boundaries because we go, we have the yeah buts. Anybody in here ever had the yeah buts? Yeah, but it's my mom. Yeah, but it's my neighbor. Yeah, but I can't really draw boundaries with this person because they're my boss. Yeah, but it's my best friend. Okay, we got to get a quick cure for the habits, okay? What we have to do is we have to look at that person. We say, I honor who they are in my life, and I'm going to put their position right over here. And I'm going to have a logical conversation with myself and say, if this was anybody else, what boundary would I instantly know needs to be applied here? Then you list out, like, here, here are the things that, that I need to require. These are, this is the responsibility that needs to be attended to for them to have the kind of access that they've been having to me. And so you list it out, and then you still honor their position, but you have a logical conversation with yourself and say, Everything can't be excused away. Some of these boundaries need to apply. So what does a healthy boundary look like? Because this gets like, yeah, man, I am down for this. But then you get into an actual situation and you're like, I can't remember what she had said. I cannot remember what she had said. And now I'm confused. And here's the other thing. You got to make sure that you're really thinking through this boundary thing. Because if you establish a boundary and you do not hold to it, the next time you try to establish a boundary with that person, it's going to be doubly hard because they will not take you seriously. So we got to think through this, okay? So what kind of boundaries really work? It doesn't work to tell that person they need to change their behavior. If you've tried that and they are not willing to lift up their responsibility, now you've got to figure out ways to reduce their access. So that's what we're looking at here is access. So let's say you have a loved one and they are addicted to drinking alcohol and they drink it in excess and it has caused so much drama. And no matter how many times you say, I do not want this 
in my home. I do not want this around my children. It is no longer acceptable for you to do this. And they are not changing their behavior. Then the boundary means you have to reduce the access. So you communicate to them, I love you. And I am not judging you. I am communicating what I need to hold myself together. Therefore, it is no longer acceptable for you to bring alcohol into my home. And if you do, this is the consequence. Then once you establish that, and the consequence, don't take it to an extreme. You know, it's like, don't say, if you do, I'll never talk to you again. Don't do that. Because that's taken to an extreme and that's not a sign of emotional sobriety. It's logical. If you do, I will have to take a break from our relationship for a month. Or I'll have to take a break from our relationship for three months. So you reduce their access down to their level of responsibility. Is there a place for grace in this? A hundred percent. And the grace comes out in how you communicate this. You don't communicate it in a tone of judgment or anger or bitterness. Do you know one of the number one killers of relationships is simmering resentments. It's when we refuse to do these kinds of boundaries because we're too scared of what it might do to the relationship. And I'm here to tell you, if you don't tend well to it, you're doing more damage to the relationship than what you can even imagine. I'm convinced relationships end not because of conversations people tried to have, but because people did not try to have the conversations. So when you hit that part of a relationship and, and, and it's normal to get there, when you hit that spot where you need boundaries, I want you to be honest with that need. I want you to be emotionally sober-minded. And how do you know? How do you know? Like, whoa, I think a boundary is here. Look at what the verse says. Cast all your anxiety on him. When you have anxiety and when you say something's got to change, that is usually an indication that it's time for a boundary. Remember, boundaries are not meant to shove other people away. They're to hold us together. And guess what? You guys are already doing it really well. You're smart people. You just get a little confused in the intensity of a relationship. But, but, and here's how I know you're doing it well. How many of you in here have a bank account? Just raise your hand. How many of you in here would just freely post your passwords to your bank account on your social media? Oh, yeah, no. See, you're already doing boundaries really, really well. <laughs> you know, to the level that people are responsible is to the level that you give them access, right? You already know this stuff. How many of you in here have a social media account? How many of you just like post, here's how to get into my social media, feel free, post whatever you'd like? No, why? Because you're smart people. You know to the level that people have demonstrated responsibilities to the level that you can give them access. I give my assistant access to my social media. Why? Because she's demonstrated responsibility. I'm not gonna give you access because I haven't had that kind of relationship where you have demonstrated responsibility. And I'm certainly not giving someone access who has demonstrated the opposite of being responsible, right? So you guys are already doing this really well. We just need to think about tending well to the relationships that are causing us anxiety. This is not just a good idea. This is a God idea. Boundaries 
are for the sake of freedom. Boundaries are for the sake of the relationship. And boundaries don't just protect you, they protect the other person and they protect the relationship from the simmering resentments that could surely kill it. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you so much. I'm always so amazed by how the words in the Bible are so very applicable for all time and in all situations. Ancient words that are alive and active and so very needed for our present day issues. Lord, help us to be honest about where we're at. Help us to be brave and kind when we have conversations with loved ones, with boundaries. Help us to not carry it to extreme where we make threats or we try control tactics or manipulation, but rather gentle, honest conversations about the reality of what is and is not acceptable inside the dynamics of that relationship. Help us to stop dancing with dysfunction, Lord. And help us to remember that mental health is a commitment to reality at all costs. In your holy name we pray, and all God's people said, amen, amen, and amen. Thank you.